Hello. This is a re-release. This is a very central uh, episode to the whole of the On Wisdom project. And it actually emerged from a task force that Igor and colleagues put together in Toronto. The Toronto Wisdom Task Force, I believe, catchy name. That led to some of the leading experts, leading scientists in the space getting together and hammering out some of these questions. What could they agree on about wisdom? What did they still disagree on about wisdom? Uh, What could be said? What still was not known? And produced papers and a very interesting video series. And we then got one of the people present there who runs the Centre for Practical Wisdom in Chicago to come along and talk about that experience. And it made for a fascinating episode. This is going back to 2020. Big year, June 21st, four days before my birthday. I'm sure you remember that. We got the charting pandemic waters, a common wisdom model for uncertain times with Howard Nussbaum. And I just want to say, there is still disagreement in the field. Some people were (laughs) really unpleasantly surprised by the fact that people decided to agree on something because it's much harder to push forward your ideas when you have actually to take a position and not just say whatever you want to say. Uh, So it's still contentious and still generates some controversy, but I think that's exactly the reaction we wanted. Anyways, enjoy. metacognition is an appreciation, if you will, of the operations and their limitations that you're engaged in in this kind of reasoning, I think. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. This is episode 24. The uh, the episode title is un- undecided. It has it has about five different titles that have been knocking around between Igor and I, and I think we're going to decide later. But one of them, which I quite like, is Toronto Task Force Academic. Avengers assemble. I think that's going to get overruled. Um, but I, I think I think it's got to be a holiday special episode on a jingle jangle, uh, all the other delicious uh, treats and uh, jingle jangle whatever all else the way. you. Yeah, that's like right. It. Jingle jangle all the way. We have with us today Howard Nussbaum. So people who are familiar with the research in this uh, area will. I've heard of Howard. For those who are less familiar with this area of research, he is the director of Chicago Center for Practical Wisdom and the Stella M. Rowley Professor of Psychology at the University of Chicago. Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You you must speak to lots of groups about the work of the center. And what do you find is the most common misconception people have around wisdom? So you say, hey, I study wisdom, or, you know, I run this center studying practical wisdom. Is there a sort of something that keeps on coming up that you think it would be interesting to to share with us now, a common misconception around the idea? I think the common misconception that I encounter most is something I encounter from students more than groups I talk to. And I think it derives from the popular media. So when you when you read media of various kinds, people use wisdom and being wise as a synonym for being smart or clever. Okay. And, and so I think that's the number one confusion is that in general, when people don't think about it, they sort of mouth the synonym wise for smart. Mm. They say, oh, that was wise of you, when in fact it was really just something that was smart or clever. Um, and then when I point them to Yoda and uh, King Solomon as sort of icons of wisdom, then they start to differentiate a little bit. 
Yeah, I suppose it's not something that that in common parlance you really are forced to to cleave apart. They are kind of used as synonyms, aren't they? Well, I think that's true, and I think it's also true that um, there are circumstances where you see instances of wise reasoning and wise policy in the press, but they're not often marked out that way. And Mm. in fact, when I talk about wisdom, I usually spend a slide or two talking about how society judges wisdom as opposed to how scientists think about wisdom. How how do you mean? Well, so there's a difference between what a psychological scientist or neuroscientist would study as a wise reasoning process. The, The set of mechanisms or processes in one's head that are engaged when one is reasoning in a certain situation that calls for wise reasoning, that's different from what we see in society when the newspaper says, oh, that's wise. And usually society doesn't call something wise if it's a sure thing. Right. You know, if there's no uncertainty, um, if there's nothing at risk, if the outcome is bad, and that's that's the biggest one is that when I talk to people about wisdom and they say, well, what if if there's a disastrous outcome from somebody who's reasoning Mm -hmm. in a wise way? That's Mm -hmm. not wisdom. And that's where psychological science, I think, differs from the popular conception because the outcome is less important perhaps than the process that one goes through to get there right so i think yeah when you speak to members of the public they would perhaps judge what scientists might call an unwise decision that had a good outcome they would say oh it turned out that was a wise decision whereas i guess scientists wouldn't would say no that wasn't a wise decision just got lucky right so so the difference i mean if if king solomon had actually cut the baby in two yeah we wouldn't talk about it as wisdom. No. <laughs> we would talk about it as stupid. But in fact, he may have made his the same bet, the same notion of understanding the two women and what it would take to be a mother and how a mother should respond. He just might be wrong in the specifics of this individual and end up cutting the baby in two. And so the process that he would have gone through might have been the same wise reasoning process. The outcome being a disaster would never have made it uh, in the press. Right. So something needs to have a good outcome uh, as well for us to sort of file it under wise in in sort of the annals of history. I I mean, I think that's that's what I see in the press anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of trying to think of the theme of today's episode and I I suppose it's sort of like the the challenges of studying wisdom. So um, we've spoken on various episodes over the 18 months we've been doing this about different aspects of it but it's kind of like both of you have sort of grabbed the bull by the horns at different stages and said you know how are we going to take this concept which is misunderstood in lots of ways and how we're going to study it and i wanted to igor i wanted to ask you about this this theme that comes up a lot causes lots of confusion it's this this idea a fallacy of the jingle jangle fallacy that you return to a lot as saying this is problematic in the field of uh, wisdom research so can you tell us maybe igor like what the jingle jangle fallacy is and why it's particularly Particularly problematic when people are trying to study wisdom. Oh yeah, sure. Well, so this is an interesting topic because uh, our first episode on the yeah uh, science of wisdom, when uh, you and I talked about what is wisdom and what it can mean, mm. um, some of the feedback we got from Twitter was about this is a perfect example of jingle jangle, and so I had to Google what jingle jangle is. Twitter exploded, I think, is the technical way. Uh, the of Twitter, it. Twi- the Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe Twitter. I don't know if Twitter exploded. Yeah. But uh, a jingle jangle is not just a treat that you can buy at Trader Joe's in the United States. Nice. Yeah. Which is uh, a nice type of treat uh, around the Christmas time. Love it. Uh, but it's also a scientific term to describe 
conceptual confusion. And there are two types of confusions that go around here. One is when you use the same term to describe different processes. And the other one, when you use different terms to describe the same process. So we give a concrete example. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. can say wisdom. And one person means uh, what Howard just said, uh, a good outcome. So just something that should not benefit me. Right. And the other person means a reasoning process, some kind of sophisticated reasoning that considers different perspectives. Well, clearly people talk about completely different terms here. One is really just an outcome. The other one is about the cognitive process or metacognitive process. Okay. Or and another example could be the opposite, where one person says, I study wisdom. The other person says, I study perspective taking. The third person says, I study empathy. And the fourth person says, I study compassion. It's like, well, what are you actually studying? And then you look at the actual materials or the ways how people measure those processes, and it turns out that they measure maybe the same thing. And it's like, oh, so why do we have these different terms? Well, maybe because that gives me an extra edge on the job market. I claim some new territory uh, okay, by studying okay, compassion yeah. or empathy. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of politics going in that. But the, that, that, that confusion, that makes it very, very challenging to uh, compare and evaluate the findings because you don't know what people are talking about. Right. But that, I mean, that would apply to any field. But it's, that's not something. That's 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 right. That's right. That uh, applies to anything in psychology, uh, and not just in psychology. Social sciences, writ large, it's specifically problematic for wisdom because there is such a baggage of possible intuitive understanding among the lay audience what it means, and fairly limited understanding or tradition in scientific science, in scientific enterprise and social sciences about what it may mean. So there's not much of an agreement, even for instance, what Howard just said earlier yeah. about wise reasoning. Uh, we have colleagues who disagree with that perspective, who think that outcome uh, and having a particular outcome and behaving in a particular way is fundamental for calling somebody wise. Otherwise, you should not be calling this person wise. And there's quite a bit of disagreement about this position, uh, something that in philosophy is called as uh, uh, moral uh, intention and action gap. So that okay. you have a gap between you may you may want to be acting this way, but are you actually acting this way? So philosophers didn't figure this out yet. Do you, um, you know, I, I might just contradict what I just said, but um, do you think wisdom, the term wisdom, is more prone to the jingle jangle fallacy than something a little bit more concrete? I mean, I know intelligence, for example, is defined in lots of different ways, but it seems a little right. bit more graspable. Is wisdom prone more so than other terms to this? I'm not sure if it's more. I mean, like, how do you quantify this? Uh, I guess some terms, uh, if they are, if if there is a greater vocabulary, a greater appreciation, especially through the popular media, uh, we define people and differentiate people in terms of how smart they are. Uh, so we are maybe more attuned since early on to think about intelligence in a particular way. So we have a clear understanding because a lot of people, especially in the Western world, do standardize tests. Uh, a lot of our careers and uh, uh, access to uh, various types of resources and outcomes uh, is dependent on uh, being able to do well on particular type of intelligence tests. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we have a sh more sh more of a shared understanding about those. Uh, whereas for wisdom, there is no wisdom test that you have to pass in order to enter the university or graduate from the university. Right. And therefore, understanding of that is a little bit more heterogeneous. I don't think it's particularly unique or more so for wisdom in part in, because of what uh, Igor just said, that actually there are few 
strong definitions of wisdom in the scientific field. And so there's much less clash. But I just heard a talk about a month ago about listening effort. So you might think that listening effort, how hard it is to work to listen to something, ought to have good agreement. And yet this was... It was the jingle jangle fallacy talk, in other words. And there were like 40 papers on either side for both cases of jingle and jangle. Right. So I think this is a common thing that happens in a number of different areas. And wisdom, we have clear cases. For example, the word wisdom is used in computer science in terms of the data, information, knowledge, wisdom um, pyramid. Uh, Right. It's used as the wisdom of crowds, uh, Sorowiecki's book, for example. And then it's used uh, in sort of the classical and, and psychological and philosophical sense that we're using it. And those three forms of wisdom have a relationship, but they're not exactly the same either. Howard, I wanted to ask you what, what the uh, definition that the center uses now. I mean, our approach to studying wisdom is is very close to, I think, what the task force uh, that Igor organized in Toronto had come up with, although the task force itself has a much more focused definition. We were we started with a kind of vernacular notion of the difference between intelligence and cleverness and expertise okay. from wisdom. And most of what we think about flows from that. But the other issue is that if it may be excellence in reasoning and decision-making for wisdom, it has to be morally grounded. And so we considered the importance of the role of moral goals or motives, depending on how you think about them, in the process of wise reasoning. And and part of that was, um, I think, consultation and interactions with people like Candace Vogler and Nancy Snow, who are both philosophers, and Valerie Tiberius, and their influence on our discussions about how we should think about this. So there's a lot of sort of philosophical influence in putting that definition together as well? Absolutely. Well, my consideration of it, the way I think about it, is that psychology's approach to intelligence um, and understanding intelligence missed the mark in the way in which we measure it today. So if you go back and look at Binet's writings, the father of the modern intelligence test, Mm. he defined intelligence as judgment. But none of our intelligence tests actually measure judgment. They measure things like synonyms and the way you repeat patterns and so forth and so on. And so there's a mismatch between how Binet thought about intelligence and what was developed by Binet to measure intelligence. And so I think about that notion of judgment and think about prudential judgment, virtue, virtue informed judgment as, as a way of thinking about wisdom. And that so, comes from these discussions. So Binet, actually, his idea of intelligence was a lot closer to what, what we think of as wisdom. That's what I think, yes. Except he didn't, you might even think about his notion of judgment as closer to common sense. Okay. And, and that's a little bit different from wisdom in yeah. the sense that, you know, you can have judgment and, and good rational thinking as, as another line of research other people engage in, Keith Stanovich. And that's not the same thing as wisdom exactly. Mm. In other words, judgment and reasoning may be the machinery by which wise reasoning operates, but it may not define the content of wise reasoning. So I think um, you mentioned the the, uh, the task force. I think it's time to have a little chat about this task force. Now, listeners will have no idea what the Toronto Wisdom Task Force is. They'll know it sounds cool, but they won't know what it is. So, Igor, can you just tell us 
why you had this conception that what I need to do with my July the 19th is uh, pull together a task force. Um, so what, what was it? What did you do? And what was the, what was the big idea? What was the plan? Well, uh, part of it is just because of my masochistic nature. So if <laughs> the conference is getting cancelled, I have to uh, uh, ensure that I will be suffering through organizing another one. Oh, because you had a the, conference and that, that one didn't come off. So you were like, I've got this time. I've got to be productive. I've got to do something with it. Well, uh, yeah. But like, why should I enjoy my summer? Right. I mean, yeah. Crazy notion. Yeah. That's great. Uh, absolutely. The idea was, well, indeed, like, first of all, uh, we were supposed to have a conference in Sri Lanka, the first Pan-Asian Summit on Wisdom and Morality, uh, that was trying to get perspectives from Asia and uh, Australasia. And unfortunately, it was postponed for a year. Now it will happen in May okay. um, instead. And so that didn't happen. And uh, it turns out that a lot of people, and this was very serendipitous, a lot of people at that time, this summer, were in Toronto, even including those who are normally not in Toronto, either because they have relatives in Toronto or because they were just like departing to other territories later. And uh, so we had experts from Australia, from uh, Chicago, and a lot of uh, Torontonian uh, researchers, as well as myself, as I live in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, who, for that short period of time, were all in the same city. And so it was fairly easy to mm-hmm. organize a meeting, uh, in part because... Um, The motivation actually came uh, twofold. I mean, this was one, and the other one was that one colleague at the University of Toronto contacted me, and his student and him are working on a meta-analysis of some of the findings about wisdom and psychology. And uh, we started talking, and it turns out that right away uh, came down to this jingle-jangle fallacy and said, hey, why don't we have a meeting? And I tried to figure out what to what are we even talking about here? Are we talking about the same thing? Because you can't really do a meta-analysis. It's otherwise, it's apples and oranges comparison right. yeah, yeah. Uh, if you really talk about different concepts. Did uh, you so check, just, just interesting, uh, did, when, yeah. when you use the term jingle-jangle, did you check that that's the same thing he means when he says jingle-jangle? <laughs> oh, are we going very meta now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But like I was just saying, like I guess like uh, we could agree to the, you know, the term we don't understand that we use the same terms in the first place. But uh-huh. yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, so anyway, so, so that's how we started. And uh, we, we had some help. I mean, the, this uh, faculty at the University of Toronto, Mark Fournier and his student, Dickie Dong, they uh, helped uh, to co-organize this meeting. And then we were able to uh, Skype in some experts like Howard and uh, Monica Dealt. And together we had a really fun time. I think uh, it was a, a short but uh, effective meeting, or just one day conference, and a lot of prep work before and after. Because what we decided to do is, um, it's like okay, it's like we have a group of uh, fifteen or so people right now that are meeting, and we we're doing video Skype and we're doing the live stream to all the way around the world. So oh, we have cool. questions from nice. the audience from other parts of the world. But we also uh, created a survey that we sent out through all major channels like uh, mailing lists of uh, social personality psychology judgment decision making and so on uh, to get perspectives from researchers from all over the world who claim that they study something related to wisdom about the definition of the construct about what exactly are they using for measuring this construct and how do they define for instance Howard mentioned already moral grounding what is moral grounding 
what do we people mean by that? And yeah. what about common good orientations? One of the terms that some of the wisdom researchers are using, and nobody knows what exactly it means. At least I didn't. And uh, maybe it's just me being dumb, but I thought a lot of people shared my sentiment. So I thought, like, let's clarify this. And so we had some open-ended responses. And then uh, during the me- before the meeting and then after the meeting, uh, we spent quite a bit of time over a month uh, analyzing those responses. And so to get some kind of a consensus definition. Can, how, do you, um, how did you decide what goes in the survey? Because, I mean, obviously that's like... If you don't get the right questions asked in the first place, you know, you're already limited. So do you need a pool of people to get together to decide what to put in the survey to send out to a bigger pool of people? Or how does that work? Well, that's a very good question. And the the, the way to do it is uh, you can have uh, sort of like just open questions uh, where you say, please define key characteristics that I, you associate with wisdom. Uh, or what is the working definition of wisdom in your research? Please describe. And then you look at the open-ended responses. So you don't provide specific questions that they would say yes or no to. And instead of that, you do quite a bit of work afterwards yeah. where you would try to systematically classify them, which we have done. Uh, this work, uh, we, we had a mixture of both. So we had this okay. open-ended set of responses and forced-choice responses. The forced-choice responses were designed in a group of four people. So I was one of those people, but uh, there was uh, Nick Westrate from Chicago, uh, Justin Brienza, and uh, Vicky Donk also uh, helped a little bit there. So, I, yeah, I guess that you then go on to extrapolate from this survey, so that gets analysed, and... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an important question. How how many people, you know, contributed to the survey and how can you be sure that the people that respond, the ones that, you know, chose not to respond, self-select out, you know, how can you know what you're missing? You know, how representative, or how confident can you be that the uh, the survey is representative of the field? Wait a second, are you asking a wisdom researcher how confident they are into something? <laughs> no, not at all confident. How can I be confident? You can't always like use that as a, as a virtue to say, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I didn't say that. I just, I just said that I'm not 100% confident. I'm uncertain. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so the issue here is that it always depends on who is willing to respond. Uh, one thing that you have to do, uh, absolutely have to do, and hasn't been done before, there were several attempts, by the way, to do some kind of a survey of this kind, uh, but none of them were uh, really effective. And the reason for that is that often people just handpick scientists and ask them directly to provide their definitions. And of course, that's sort of a very leading and biased way to do it. Uh, so what we did was uh, it was anonymous. So you didn't have pressure to respond in a particular way. And it was just sent out through all major channels, including in China. And we did end up getting a fairly representative, well, representative in the sense of that we were capturing a wider population in the world. Of course, it's not really representative because we had at the end uh, like about 50 plus uh, research groups that uh, participated. But we did capture some Chinese, uh, some uh, some people from Russia, some people from West Germany, uh, uh, from Germany, from uh, Western Europe, uh, from Americas, both uh, uh, North America and South America, and uh, in that sense, it, and, and from Australia. So, in that sense, it's more representative than anything that has been done before. Uh, but whether one group from Australia or two groups from Australia would really be representative of uh, all the wisdom scholarship in Australia writ large, sure. of course, a big question. Yeah, it's impossible to answer, I suppose. So, okay, big question. Do you have a, yeah. def- do you have a definition of wisdom? Well, uh, Howard, what do you think? Do we have a definition <laughs> of wisdom? 
I, I think we have an agreed upon uh, starting core for such a definition. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. What what is it? I'm I'm on tenterhooks here. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I was very skeptical, and uh, I'm not sure about Howard. I think Howard is like as a uh, is more of an optimist here. Okay. But uh, I was fairly skeptical in part because uh, it, it was really more of an adversarial group because people have very different definitions. And okay. uh, then you start looking at the survey results, and certainly, uh, well, first of all, I became less skeptical after the meeting because in the meeting, it turns out everybody is more or less agreeing, and maybe that's just a, a virtue of being in Canada and people are polite and nice, <laughs> or even those who are not from Canada try to be more polite and nice right. to each other. But uh, there was certainly this kind of uh, positive, agreement-oriented uh, attitude to the, the aspiration to really figure out what is in common. And there was a lot in common. So this focus on what some psychologists would call metacognitive processes, sort of like consider different perspectives, recognize your limitations. We already talked about that. Uh, go beyond what you know immediately what's in front of you, try to look at things from different viewpoints, that uh, seems to be present and shared among many wisdom researchers. And then the other thing that uh, seemed to have emerged is the this kind of a more moral, aspirational aspect, moral grounding, as uh, Howard calls it. Some people okay. call it sort of moral sort of disposition. I don't like this term, but uh, uh, sort of uh, that you, you're oriented towards benefiting not just yourself, but also okay. other people around you. And uh, so there are these moral goals, and they can then they include, by the way, uh, according to the common perspectives across 50-something research groups uh, or researchers in this case, some of them come from the same lab potentially, they include like uh, seeking out uh, a greater truth, uh, this common good orientation, be more pro-social towards in-group and out-group, and this notion of shared humanity, which mm. means that you would not just focus on your in-group, people who are part of your tribe, but also mm. go beyond that and consider what is in common between your tribe and other tribes. So like in, certainly in the time of political polarization that we have in Europe, in North America and other parts of the world, it's very probably they're probably very important uh, characteristic. And then common good orientation also breaks down into the same characteristics, as it turns out, like a shared humanity, uh, pro-sociality in general, uh, sort of cooperation, willingness to go beyond your self-interests. Uh, so these fe two features, at the end, it okay. ends up being this kind of moral aspirations and metacognition. Okay, so, so if you cleave off the, the uh, moral aspirations or the moral grounding bit, it wouldn't be wisdom in this sense. So, you know, if, you, if you're very good at sort of integrating multiple perspectives, you know, being aware that things won't uh, unfold in a straight line, um, all of that would alone, without the moral aspects of it, is not wisdom. That that seems to be key. You could be a good sociopath. You, yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, so wisdom without morals leads to sociopathic behavior. Okay, that's good to know. Okay. Well, it, it, it need not, right. No, no, it need not. I'm just saying that, so one of the conversations with Nancy Snow, for example, w was about this notion of evil wisdom. It, so could you have evil wisdom? And if you have this requirement of a moral grounding that elides from consideration, you know, sort of, an evil, evilly wise person. They can be very smart. They can be clever. They can integrate lots of information. They can even have a kind of um, sympathy for other people in some sense to inform their reasoning, but they may not be empathic uh, for those other people. And, and then that's just the oppositional notion of it. So if you have a moral grounding, that sort of moves the notion of wisdom into sort of the positive side 
generally. I right, suppose, right, right, right. Yeah, I suppose one question that sort of leaps out is, is moral, the word moral, is that an objective? Everyone would agree what we mean by moral. Like, say, you said shared humanity, it sort of gets filed under moral behavior but some people might think you know prioritizing the needs of your your family rather than shared right. humanity is moral behavior so is it a bit a bit of a cheat to just sort of use the word moral and, and assume that everyone's going to mean the same thing by the word moral look so we did try to get under the hood of what scientists mean by moral right so that's what uh, what i think is quite important yeah. from this meeting where we did not just say moral aspirations we also define what exactly do scientists mean like including the shared humanity and actually by the way more shared humanity than in-group cooperation uh, when okay. uh, when we ask people like what do you associate with moral uh, okay. grounding or moral component of wisdom there were fewer people who would say that in-group cooperation is important than shared humanity or even this other feature which uh, often is neglected, I think, certainly in the lay uh, talks about wisdom, and that is pursuit of truth. So like being honest, not deceiving others and not deceiving oneself. That is like a moral aspiration to some extent. It's very different from both shared humanity and just being cooperative towards you in group. Right. So you have defined it in a way. I mean, I think this issue is important because, and I agree with um, Igor that there's a there's a level of, shall we say, disquiet about the moral term on the one hand, but it connects to two other kinds of fields. So people who do virtue ethics, for example, think about moral virtues. It connects to that field of philosophy. And at the same time, in social psychology, there's a there's in, in developmental psychology, there's a area of moral reasoning which has been around for some time, and so it connects to both of those fields. This notion of shared humanity, I think, is, a, is an important one because it allows us to think about wisdom in the context of other people. So if you think about intelligence, mostly intelligence is problem-solving of a, of a broad notion, in, in, you know, whether the problems are economic policy for a for a country or your banking needs or how do you decide where to go to school, all of that is framed in certain kinds of ways in fairly narrow narrow senses. But if you think about economic policy and its impact on people's lives, if you think about mm. your choices of school and how it impacts your family, then you start thinking in a, in a broad and different way. And so intelligence may have a, for, a much more narrow set of criteria upon which the decisions are made. When you involve sort of a common sense of humanity, then you broaden the scope of your decision-making to think about other people, even when it's not obviously part of the problem. And that sort of changes the nature of reasoning. And I think that's where part of this issue of moral, moral grounding, for want of a better term, goes. It's funny because I was just thinking ahead to the next the, the next part, then, you know, there's two parts to this kind of presentation of a definition. And the other one is about the metacognition. And there were these two terms that came up that um, uh, are often referred to under the umbrella of metacognition. But it seems to tie into what Howard was just saying there about, well, the two terms are um, pro propositional logic and perspectival insight. And from the kind of idea I got from the paper was that perspectival insight encouraged you to consider things from different perspectives, which is sort of what Howard 
I think you were getting at in terms of uh, a decision becoming moral once you start to look at it from other other perspectives. So, so one of the things that came out of Valerie Tiberius's book book on the reflective life is the importance of taking other people's perspectives and thinking about a decision that you're going to make. And that, on one hand, we often have certain values or things that we judge our prospective choices by. Like if I choose to go to this school or that school, or if I choose to buy this car or that car, I think about those choices in terms of different kinds of values I have, and I evaluate my choices that way. What Tiberius talks about is the notion of it being important to take other people's perspectives and in taking other people's perspectives, not just to be able to list what they consider important, but perhaps to appreciate, if you will, or even feel the affective consequences of those, those choices in respect of their values. And so when you get into somebody else's shoes in terms of feeling what they would feel, I think that's the, that's the issue about perspective here. And, it's, and I'm a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if I said much about this with this notion of metacognition in the sense that the way metacognition is studied by cognitive psychologists is often grading right. whether you know what you know or grading how well you did. In this case, metacognition is an appreciation, if you will, of the operations and their limitations that you're engaged in in this kind of reasoning, I think. And that's important from, from Tiberius's perspective because often don't know how well you can take someone else's perspective. Right. And so that's a, that's a problem and that's a limitation on wise reasoning. And I think it poses a kind of scientific challenge, which is really interesting, which is part of why I'm interested in this issue. Hmm. So I, I, just to refer to something a lot simpler, just basic intelligence, how does, if we think of wisdom as this morally grounded sort of metacognitive perspectival insight, does that suggest... Uh, what the role of basic sort of traditional IQ intelligence plays in all of this? Is it completely irrelevant? Are they completely different skill sets? Or, you know, what impact is your intelligence going to have on your ability to be able to do these things? I don't think you can be ignorant and I don't think you can be stupid and, and engage in wise reasoning. If you're, right. if you're, if you're, if you're, I mean, using the vernacular forms of those, those terms, but I think that there's a problem with the way we define intelligence scientifically. And one could well imagine that we simply got off on the wrong track of trying to, if you think about sort of the scientific definitions from Thorndike or Cattell or, or Binet or Sternberg or Howard Gardner, those kinds of definitions of intelligence are discoordinate with the fact that we are social beings as humans and discoordinate with the role of that social existence in the process of being smart and solving problems. And, and by extracting the criteria for the assessment of what we call intelligence from that social and emotional context, it takes it out of the human realm in some sense. So it de-psychologizes the scientific study of intelligence in a very weird way, I think. Mm. And I think wisdom moves back in the direction of, as Binet talked about it, judgment, where that's embedded in a kind of social and affective context. It's also important to realize that, like, for instance, when we talk about wisdom and even in sciences, uh, there are some researchers who still uh, do the same thing as intelligence researchers do because, you know, like you look at how intelligence research has been 
uh, unfolding as an enterprise and like you try to emulate that. And so you end up with this completely decontextualized person-centric wisdom. And exactly as Howard said, like without understanding the context, it becomes uh, like a futile enterprise because uh, especially for wisdom uh, or this type of judgment that's supposed to be pragmatic, context is everything. Without uh, appreciating it, without like being oriented towards appreciating it, uh, you're losing uh, and the variability of uh, you know different decisions across contexts. You're losing the uh, the key thing that is making right. it wisdom in, for, right. for many right. definitions, many philosophical definitions. So that does actually lead lead us nicely into measuring because some ways that wisdom is measured pay more attention to that than others. So people might not have any idea about how wisdom is measured. So this is. This is kind of what we're talking about now. So are there sort of uh, different classes of wisdom tools? I mean, there's quite a, a few different measurement tools out there. Can they be grouped into sort of, you know, there's this kind and that kind, or are they all completely different, Eagle? How does that work? When you look at any wisdom paper, especially an overview paper, it will start with wisdom can mean many things for different people. So you would expect, based on that, that the measures would be vastly different. It turns out they're not. They're really, really similar conceptually because they do gather this kind of moral stuff on the one hand and this kind of metacognitive or this kind of awareness of your limitations, perspectives, so like stuff that makes you be more aware of the social context and integrate in your decision-making, as Howard pointed out, on the other hand. Uh, but then how exactly it is measured, that's where it gets tricky. So okay. some people just like say like, hey, self-report because it's easy. Uh, so let me ask you how humble you are. And you say, hey, I'm the most humble person in the world. You have no idea how humble I am. Uh, and the other I, know person who, I know who you're talking about there. <laughs> I don't know. Who, who are you talking about? Uh, on the other hand, you could sort of like try to look at, give people sort of a challenging task and look if they even mention that they may not have an idea uh, how to solve this issue and okay. sort of like look at it behaviorally. So there's that distinction. If someone takes one of each of those types of tests, do people come out completely differently on the tests? Not completely differently, but uh, the convergence between these tests is so low that some uh, outsider may even wonder whether they're measuring the same thing. Even though it, conceptually they are talking about the same thing. Yeah, and this is, by the way, not something that's specific to mm. wisdom. Uh, mm. Like Harvard can speak to that too. Like there are many, many examples. For instance, self-regulation is another good example where there are uh, five different ways uh, to conceptualize it, and they are often completely unrelated to each other. But they're also on a, even the basic level of uh, cognitive processing, memory, and so on, uh, and attention. Uh, you often don't find necessarily convergence. And here you would not expect necessarily a convergence because, uh, again, one is about individual difference and the other one is about situation-specific response and one may be about sort of self-report which is subject to sorts, all sorts of biases and the other one is about observer reports which is subject to observer biases. Right. So what do, what do you do? What do you advise as, as a task force? What do you, have you come, come up with some sort of recommendation that you say okay if you're interested in studying wisdom you need to use tool x don't use tool y or you're saying you should use x and y or, or what 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 is a what kind of consensus did you come to in terms of you know presenting uh, a way forward for people who want to measure wisdom Oh, well, it's, it's complicated. And, and, I, and I hope that Howard can qualify my answers because obviously I have one perspective on this and now the people who are uh, on this paper, including Howard, may have some different perspectives. Uh, the 
take-home messages that you really need to be mindful of what is it that you're interested in measuring? What is your research question? Are you interested okay. in individual difference? Are you interested in state-specific response? How much do you care about people's self-perceptions? How much do you care about having some kind of more objective, if you want, uh, marker? And so if you're interested in individual difference, you cannot really measure it just once because people's uh, responses may be quite variable. Okay. So you need to sample people multiple times across multiple situations, at least three, unless it's something that's really, really stable. Oh, so it just sounds expensive. Oh, like, well, you know, wisdom is expensive. <laughs> yeah, and so if you want to measure something on the situational level, you have to be very mindful of what are the features of the situation and how exactly do you want to uh, approach this. Ultimately, okay. it comes down to sort of like, you know, how many resources do you have available for the mm -hmm. study? Mm -hmm. And just be mindful of what are the limitations of different approaches. So I agree completely that um, the tool you need to measure depends on the specific question you have and oftentimes you have a question well the notion of studying wisdom is vague in itself because wisdom is not a holistic uh, concept if what wisdom is is a process by which one juggles the uncertainty and competing uh, considerations in any particular choice the way in which you do that may differ and the kind of knowledge you may bring to bear it may differ. And so you could think of someone who's a wise surgeon or a wise oncologist, and those two people could be very different in many ways. Or somebody who's a wise professor and someone who's a wise elementary school teacher could be very different, should be very different in, in different ways. And so understanding the kind of thing you're studying, whether it's, as Igor said, individual differences or whether it's how people develop wisdom is, is going to shape the way in which you study it. So one of the things that we do that's a little bit different from other wisdom research groups is oftentimes what we're studying is really not wisdom itself, but some of the what might be thought of as foundations or constituent parts. If we think about taking perspective as important, one could study perspective taking even independent of wisdom just to understand that as its own process. Right, right. Or epistemic humility, you know, sort of what you know and what you don't know, or perseverance. And so we have used measures like measures of uh, emotional intelligence, the mesquite test. We've used measures like need for cognition because if you don't care about solving problems, you might not be very good at wise reasoning. And we've tried to relate some of those constituents to some of these overall measures um, just to ask those questions about how do the parts go together with the whole. Just to occur to me there, like if you do measure like the, the, the things that make up what you're working with as a definition for wisdom, is there a, is, does it follow that they will sort of, those scores combine to give a wisdom score? I think that's a great question and I don't have a great answer for it. The, the way that we've looked at it in some of the surveys that we've done using some of the tools that have been sort of standardly used, things like Monica Ardell's uh, three-dimensional wisdom scale on the one hand, but also Igor's situated wise reasoning scale, as well as things we've developed on epistemic humility and other people's uh, need for cognition and so forth, is we look at the relationships among these scores and how they vary. We don't hmm. necessarily try to come up with a composite score. Uh, Monica Ardell has said you don't want to look at the separate dimensions, cognitive, affective, and reflective wisdom of her 
scale, although we often do and we find they don't, they're highly correlated but don't always hang together. And so I'm not sure that coming up with like a total wisdom score that that would necessarily be predicted from the parts mm. um, is necessarily going to be true. One of the things that we have demonstrated in, in some recent research is looking at the relationship between what's called emotional intelligence and wise reasoning. There's a like a first order correlation, but that may be mediated by things like need for cognition and uh, epistemic humility. And so there are complex relationships among these yeah. that are not simple summations. When I came to Chicago a while back, when there was, you know, Howard brought some people together uh, for a symposium, I spent the previous day wandering the streets of Chicago with a microphone asking people to define wisdom. Um, just, you know, sort of people sweeping the streets or working in a pancake house. Um, and it was quite interesting. But the most common thing that came up was, oh, yeah, tough times lead to wisdom. Um, so I really just saw that right at the coalface. That is a, a very stable myth or not myth i don't know if it's a myth it's a very stable sort of uh, view folk folk belief i suppose is what they say Um, so i kind of interested in both of you's views on from these discussions did you kind of get anywhere with that did you get a sense of you know is that is that trauma adversity just bad and actually that we've got that all wrong or is there something to that or is it a blend of the two or yeah what did anything any details sort of emerge around that idea I mean, it really depends on what you mean by trauma. By the way, I first thought when you're asking about trauma and wisdom, I thought you'd talk about my traumatic experience of writing with 10 co-authors <laughs> and getting everybody we, to agree. Did you become wiser <laughs> by the end of it? That's the question. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I, well, actually, you, mean, you know, like I learned some things about how to respond yeah, to I different bet. people I bet. Uh, and uh, how to strategically navigate uh, challenges. <laughs> uh, but uh, back to the trauma and adversity like a more broad term that is potentially doesn't have the clinical implication. It's tricky. And the reason why it's tricky is because uh, the cultural context of uh, this uh, folk belief, as you call it, is very, very Christian. And uh-huh. in many uh, other parts of the world, uh, you may have very different folk beliefs, even though, you know, Christian Christianity is, of course, one of the dominant cultural fabrics uh, around many parts of the world now. So uh, if you look at the empirical research, there is this notion of post-traumatic growth or some kind of learning from adversity, or as Nietzsche would say, what doesn't kill you you makes you stronger. Mm. But uh, the empirical work on this, as it turns out, is not really quite as solid. So we, uh, one of our uh, former guests, uh, Randa Giavekrame, for instance, had another Templeton project specifically addressing this question. Uh, and uh, so far, it seems like evidence for a linear relationship between adversity or post-traumatic growth and uh, any kind of uh, sort of character growth characteristics is uh, very tenuous and probably non-existent. You see mm-hmm. quite a bit of resilience. It's not like that people are becoming worse if they experience a lot of adversities, okay. but as a uh, as a whole, they're not necessarily uh, growing. Now, so, so how do you reconcile this with this kind of general belief? Well, it turns out a lot of uh, prior research mostly looked at questionnaires where you ask people retrospectively after the fact if they grew from an experience. And there you have two issues. Not one, number one, people are just you know reporting things that they want to report. So there is a certain selection bias and only those who may have mastered something may be willing to report on it. 
Right. And number two, people often believe things. Uh, well, like they, in post hoc mem- memory is a funny thing, and you know it it, it may be deceiving you, and you may be uh, making uh, certain attributions uh, based on what comes to your mind first instead of what was actually trans. Inspiring as as it happened. So what you need to do is to do this kind of prospective studies where you look at people over time and measure them in the moment when they are going through difficult, challenging experiences. And as I said, when you look at that work, turns out there is very little evidence for a linear effect. It depends on what kind of uh, strategies you tend to use. So sometimes. Uh, using some kind of maybe more observer-oriented uh, uh, viewpoints on yourself may put you on the trajectory of growth, whereas if you really immerse yourself in that experience, you may get stuck and it may put you on a path to rumination and depression and so on. So that's what evidence suggests so far. But in terms of uh, the wisdom research in general, uh, we are only at the onset of trying to look at it uh, with a good measures at this question of adversity slash trauma and uh, wisdom-related processes. So that sounds like bad news. <laughs> no, I mean, people are resilient. People are very resilient. So it's not like... So the, the, what is interesting is that you don't see a decline. Okay. Uh, so it's remarkable. You throw anything at people and they just, yep, yeah, I'm okay. I mean, I think one of the things that feeds into the the common cultural notion is the fact that we iconify individuals who go through bad experiences and seem wise. So when you think about Anne Frank, when you think about Primo Levi, um, on the one hand, you know, going through horrible experiences, these people seem to, as, as Igor said, be resilient. You see things blossom in unexpected ways. Primo Levi becomes a incredible novelist uh, after being in a concentration camp. But, of course, he commits suicide. So, Hmm. may may have committed suicide. So, I mean, I think these situations that become uh, very marked in sort of culture contribute to this notion, this post-Nietzschean notion about, you know, doing better that and there is this other kind of spiritual notion, right, that if you're paying a cost, you ought to get a benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not sure, as Igor says, the, the research is, is quite mixed. And the one study that was prospective that, that I know about, um, that I heard about uh, in Aranda's meeting, showed that some people do do better, but by far not everyone does. And I think that's probably true about any experience. Like if you think about peak experiences that people have, positive experiences, some people may take from that a positive experience and do better, and some people may do worse. Um, If that's the best I'm going to do in my life, it's depressing. So I, I think that experiences interact with the nature of the individual who experiences it and the attitudes and thoughts and processes they have when they come to it. And in understanding that, the intersection of people by by the experience itself uh, is probably the critical way of trying to understand wisdom and growth. So, so far we talked about uh, sort of the general understanding of wisdom, and it seems like we kind of seem to be emerging with a consensus. But uh, one thing that I really liked about this work is also that we are moving towards sort of having a set of future directions things that we haven't answered yet 
uh, that we can potentially answer by having a sort of a common wisdom understanding. And one uh, thing in particular that seems to be striking a chord for me, but I think a lot of people, including those uh, who are listening to this podcast, is the relationship between wisdom and artificial intelligence or machine learning agents. So, Howard, I wanted to ask you about what is your take on the relationship between wisdom and artificial intelligence? Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your thoughts as well as uh, how it relates to this common wisdom model we have. It's an interesting question because the people in computer science are actually concerned about this. When I was at the National Science Foundation, I spent a fair amount of time with the computer science uh, directorate people, and their concern is about the problem of how artificial intelligence can have a benefit for society. So the the way this emerges is essentially something called values-based design. If you think about a a program that is used to evaluate whether or not you're a good person to give a mortgage, Mm -hmm. if all that goes into the figuring of that uh, choice has to do with the financials and doesn't consider like where you come from, what your neighborhood is like, your experiences in others in other settings if it doesn't apply sort of social values as opposed to financial values you'll end up with a very skewed mortgage giving system and it's going to be skewed with all the biases of our current society and so people in computer science are very concerned about this and it's interesting that if you look for the DIKW pyramid the the data information knowledge wisdom pyramid in computer science they actually think about wisdom in, a, in an interesting way that relates to the common model that we're talking about. Data is numbers. Information is how those numbers inform some problem. Uh, knowledge is the context in which the information is used or taken. And wisdom are the application of values to the interpretation of that information. Mm. And so this notion of values comes into computer science but it's not really figuring into AI much at this point in time. There's a, something called the Future of Life Institute. At, um, I think its home is at MIT. And they wrote this, um, this letter sort of warning society about the dangers of AI and asking for a kind of international AI arms treaty so that you know the notion of smart robots and drones with guns uh, could be preempted. But the other side of it was a kind of notion that AI should focus research on things like values and and perhaps what we would call wise reasoning. And so I think trying to come up with a notion of how you understand people, how you take into account others in a non-psychopathic way, is really the critical direction for this. Sounds a little bit like we we coming back to that question about the moral grounding. Which values would you program into your... AI. So, I th- and I think that's an interesting question. So, I, I'm reminded of the fact that I, so in a former life, <laughs> I used to do research in AI. And in, in the, yes, in the 1970s, I went wow. to an AI conference. And there was an interesting conversation that took place between Herb Simon and Feigenbaum, two people who, who work, mm-hmm. worked in artificial intelligence. And the challenge was to, to say, could you ever program a computer to get a joke and laugh? Not the, the, not the manifestation of laughing, but actually to appreciate humor. Mm. And Herb Simon said, oh, what a great idea. I will go back and give that to my graduate student. He'll do his dissertation on it, which never happened. 
I think that right. this issue about what does it mean to appreciate humor is not unrelated from the things we're talking about in terms of moral grounding. I mean, certainly things like schadenfreude, understanding mm. irony, for example. Um, my colleague, Clark Gilpin, who was the dean of the Divinity School here, used to say that if a society does not appreciate irony, it will never have wisdom. That's interesting. And I think that that reflects something important about what humor and values and virtues are in terms of human understanding. So that the challenge for artificial intelligence is not to put in a checklist of values like, should I show gratitude? Should I be okay. honest? Yeah. Do I have empathy? But, you know, there's, a, there's an example that um, Schwartz and Sharp talk about in their chapter, their paper about uh, wisdom, about your friend is wearing a new outfit and she looks awful. Are you honest with her and tell her because she values honesty that she looks awful and therefore spare her embarrassment? Mm. Or are you empathic and make her try to make her feel good about the choices she's already made? Wisdom is required, if you will, to equilibrate between those kinds of values. And how do you get some kind of computer mm. to show the intelligence to make that evaluation? It's no longer just intelligence mm. because in Tiberius's version of wisdom, you have to feel what she'd feel mm. in order to do the right, shall we say, evaluation. But you think that's beyond... I mean, when you work out what someone else is feeling, I suppose you use cues from their face and their body language, and then you say, if I, if, if you then mimic those yourself, that triggers the feeling inside you. So you, that's how you work out how someone else feels. But a computer wouldn't be able to do that because what would it refer to as that's how someone else feels? What it means for a computer to feel something may be the challenge for artificial intelligence, which is why getting a computer to understand humor is the same, perhaps, challenge in some way. That is, uh, computers themselves are not embodied, and simply giving them a robotic body won't solve the problem of visceral affective responses. Okay. Um, I am going to ask one very last question. You've done the Toronto um, Wisdom Task Force. I'm interested if there are any surprises in the whole uh, initiative for either of you, anything that emerged that you're like, huh, I didn't see that coming. So maybe Howard, was there, was there, let's start with you and then I'll come to Igor. Any surprises in this, this experience for you about uh, what, the, what the field seems to be coalescing around? I think it was surprising to me first that there was good agreement on core aspects of this okay. definition, but also I was a little bit surprised that, our that there are people who are thinking about wisdom as something that could be manifest in isolation from other people on a desert island in some sense. A uh, surprising thing for me, by the way, for our listeners, uh, there will be a link uh, under this podcast. You can go to our website and see the link to the YouTube stream of the right, uh, yeah. Toronto Wisdom Task Force. So if you're interested, yeah, there are over five hours of wonderful <laughs> conversations. After Christmas dinner, when there's that awkward period, you're not sure what to That's do. That's right. 
problems. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for me, I, I I kind of agree with uh, Howard that uh, the quite remarkable degree of uh, of overlap in the various definitions that claim to measure uh, something entirely different, and then you look under the hood, uh, you look under these kind of larger umbrella terms that people are using, and they actually often converge on the same underlying psychological processes. Uh, so that was quite fascinating. So that that's a, an optimistic, upbeat note to end. Where will people be able to actually read this if they're interested in getting into all the detail? Again, on our website, uh, underneath, there will be a link uh, to the preprint and the paper is coming out in Psychological Inquiry this coming year. Excellent. Howard, thank you so much for joining us on this sprawling discussion of all things wisdom. We covered a huge amount um, in, in not very long, really. So thank you so much for sharing all your experience. Uh, and we really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Howard. Thanks, Igor. Thanks, Charles. And here's the summary. In this episode, we talked about challenges of study wisdom and recent advances made towards coming up with a consensus position on wisdom in sciences. We contrasted wisdom, as studied by psychologists, and smartness, which is how it is often viewed by lay audience in the society. We introduced the notion of jingle-jangle fallacies, using the same term to describe different processes and use of different descriptors for the same psychological process. The jingle-jangle is common to many scientific concepts, including wisdom, as well as basic cognitive processes such as listening effort. We also discussed the proceedings of the Toronto Wisdom Task Force, the recent summit of wisdom researchers who worked towards establishing a consensus definition in the emerging field of wisdom science. At the gathering, wisdom scientists established that central to wisdom a certain metacognitive process, going beyond what is in front of you, considering different perspectives and attempting to figure out how to balance them, as well as moral aspirations or goals, such as common good orientation, seeking greater truth, and focusing on the shared humanity, what is in common between different groups, including different political groups. We discussed how wisdom is assessed and different challenges of measuring desirable qualities, such as humility or empathy, through self-report questionnaires. We also discussed differences between observer and self-assessments. Ultimately, assessment of wisdom has to start with clarifying what question one is interested in. Finally, we discussed the role of adversity for wisdom and the lack of solid empirical research to provide clarity to specific folk beliefs, as well as the connection of wisdom to the ever-increasing role of artificial intelligence in our society. We are at the end of this episode of the On Wisdom podcast. If you liked it, please consider subscribing or sharing this episode with your friends. And if you have any comments or suggestions for topics or guests, please let us know. Till the next time.